you know, if we harm our environment through climate change or pollution or through logging and land clearing and loss of biodiversity, obviously we're harming the natural world. But what what many people don't haven't realised or don't realise is that we're, it circles back around and we end up harming ourselves. That's Dr Dimity Williams speaking on a webinar organised by the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. Dr Williams from Melbourne has written the book Nature Our Medicine, How the Natural World Sustains Us. Yes, this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations and I am your host, Robert McLean. Welcome, it's great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton in northern Victoria, Australia on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Before hearing from Dr. Williams, we hear an introduction from Dr. Michelle Maloney, who is the co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. Let's hear now from Michelle Maloney. Today, I'm really delighted because Dimity Williams has joined us, um, and she is one of the people who is part of a group I deeply admire, Doctors for the Environment. And Dimity's got a book out called Nature, Our Medicine, How the Natural World Sustains Us. And I've been really enjoying reading it. It's um, rather beautiful, actually. And Dimity's going to talk to us all about what I like to think of as Western science catching up with the idea that not only are we part of nature, but good gosh, we need it. We need so much of it to be healthy and happy and productive and groovy. Um, How are you today, Dimity? I'm really well, thanks, Michelle. And it's great to be here and have a conversation with you about nature and medicine, of course, which I love to talk about. And now let's listen to Dr. Williams. Thanks so much again for having me uh, at lunchtime today. Um, I also wanted to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the country I'm uh, speaking to you from, who are the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and to pay my respects and express my gratitude for their care of country um, and, you know, of course, being the first scientists and the first healers, we have so much to learn from them. And I feel like I'm learning all the time and still obviously have so much to learn. So, and also I'd like to acknowledge that, um, yes, they're still waiting for treaty and that um, and truth-telling uh, and obviously the voice, which is coming up later this year. Yes, so as Michelle mentioned, I'm a doctor, a real-life breathing GP and I've been doing it for quite a long time nearly 30 years actually so I'm feeling like quite an old hand Um, so the great thing about working in general practice is um, you know that we get to look you know get get to forge a relationship with people who come to see us so we see them over a long period of time so I have some patients who you know is looking after their mums when they were in utero and now they're growing into young people so seeing people across the lifespan and also appreciating their and understanding their health and well-being within the broader context of their family and the community they live in and their work um, situation and, of course, what's happening more broadly. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a unique perspective, I think, the perspective of a GP when it comes to health. And then alongside my work as a GP, I've had this kind of parallel career for the last 15 or so years in environmental advocacy, and this has been in various um various forms. Uh, So there's a few uh, here on the screen. So on the right, you can see um, uh, the Community Climate Action Group I became uh, co-founded and became involved with 
quite heavily when I first uh, switched on to uh, climate change and what it meant for a people and planet. And um, so here we are all, you know, uh, giving a bit of grief to our federal member who was Peter Costello at the time. Um, and then I became involved with Doctors for the Environment, which is the middle picture. And I've been working with them for about 13 years. Um, doctors for the Environment Australia is a national organisation of doctors and medical students from all different facets of medicine. So we have researchers, GPs, psychiatrists, you know, every different sort of specialty you can imagine, um, and from all across the country. Um, people working in big hospitals, people working in on you know, Aboriginal communities, people working in the cities. Um, and we work together to try and highlight this relationship between health and the natural world. And have we harm nature, we harm human health. So that means um, trying to engage with politicians, with the broader medical community and with the, the wider general community on these issues. So we write lots of submissions, we prevent it present at conferences, we write scientific papers, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and on the far left, that's a photo of me in uh, the Tarkine or Takanya part of Tasmania in the rainforest there. So I've uh, been involved with the Bob Brown Foundation um, to try and raise awareness, to try and protect this area from logging and mining. So been there on a couple of occasions to try and bring about some protection for that area too. Yeah, so all these sort of different different facets of my work. Um, and also I've been, uh, I was a co-founder of the, am a co-founder of the Kids in Nature Network, which we started about 10 years ago. And um, its signature event is called Nature Play Week. Um, and it sort of, it really seeks to um, highlight the importance uh, for children's wellbeing and development to spend time out in nature. And also this helps to grow this connection and love of nature, which really can begin in, should, you know, begin in childhood. Um, so that's another, another, another kind of thing that's been happening for me in the background, as well as being a, a mother myself, I guess, and, and sort of seeing the challenges that many parents face today, trying to give their kids opportunities to be outside in nature and, and how, you know, how we can navigate that to try and give them the time and space that they need just to simply be outside. Um, and then now I'm an author and um, Michelle mentioned my book, Nature, Our Medicine, How the Natural World Sustains Us. And there I am very proud of myself having finally finished it and, um, yeah, standing with the, the wonderful Bob Brown who very kindly wrote the foreword for the book. Um, yeah, so that has been a um, what happened was I had all of this information, of course, from um, which I was aware of um, through all this other work that I've been doing. And a lot of it's bound up in scientific journals or policy documents or position statements or government documents. And I really wanted to try and create uh, a, a more simple language for people to kind of understand and try and reach more people with this, this same message. So that's the rationale behind the book. So one of the questions I get often asked is why, what, what has health got to do with nature anyway and why would a doctor care about biodiversity why don't I just stick to working in the practice you know why don't I just stick to dealing with the patient in front of me and for me that's kind of a strange question really because there's no true separation between us and nature we kind of are nature you know we are literally covered in life we have a whole microbiome within us in our gut and in our mouth and, um, you know, in other parts of our body. And there's this real dance and interplay between our microbiome and all the living things on and within us 
and the natural world around us, the soils that um, our food is grown in, the air that we breathe. We get more than half the medicines we use today have come from the natural world. And if we step back and have more of a Google Earth view of health, we can see that the natural world provides the foundations for our health, you know, the fresh air that we breathe, the water we drink, healthy soils to grow our food, all these different plants and animals that um, support our well-being. And, of course, just being out in nature is so therapeutic for us psychologically and spiritually and provides also places for us to play and learn. So really, you know, health and nature just um, they sit they sit together, they nest they nest together. But of course, with society today, we've kind of separated ourselves off from nature, so that that's why people can ask the question, "What's nature got to do with health?" And I think it can be helpful to reflect back on our childhoods, which is why I have this picture of one of my sons when he was little, lying on the ground, um, because having children for me made me reflect on my own childhood and how different it was to the childhood of children today. So my own children, but also children who I'm seeing in the practice coming in. So I'd like to invite everyone, if they're happy to, just to spend a few moments, they can close their eyes if they like, but just to remember their own childhoods and where their favourite place to play was. And to remember, um, yeah, where that place was and what the sounds and sights of that place were and, you know, who they were with, whether they were by themselves or with friends or were they with an adult and how they felt being in that place emotionally and, um, yeah, what, what were the sort of senses that they, that the sense that they get when we take our minds back, we can often feel little subtle changes in our body when we think when we have memories of places yeah, and you can open your eyes again and come back to your computer screen. Um, but for me, when, when I was a child, I had this really nature-rich childhood, even though I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne. I um, went to the park at the uh, um, bushland at the end of the street and a whole group of us would just play down there after school and on the weekends with no adults in sight, just lots of kids of all different ages together. And there's this real sense of freedom and exploration and spaciousness and um, I, don't, I don't think we'll really have time today but people might like to share later with their family or their friends you know what their memory was like and what their childhood was like and if we think about that in and then we compare that to childhood today where children are generally rushed from place to place and there's they have less time and there's also less nature around for them to engage with and it's um, something I think we really need to hold on to that appreciation because we then see that flow out into our healthcare system with the sorts of things that are coming in to, to doctors and healthcare settings all over the place. And there's this, this disconnect um, through this lack of nature and lack of time in nature, I think is really encapsulated so beautifully by Lunig in this cartoon. So it's sort of called the, it's called the joys of spring, I think. So there's a man outside enjoying the joys of spring, but he's actually just completely absorbed in his device. And I think it's important to understand that now we spend so much time in front of a screen, we've literally moved inside to sit down and look at a screen. And so screen spaces have taken the place of green places in our lives. And even when we go outside, 
we're often just got our earbuds in and we're listening to a podcast or we're having a conversation with someone who's nowhere near us. So this um, sort of become disconnected from often from one another, which is why we currently have an epidemic of loneliness, despite people being theoretically more connected than ever before. And we're disconnected from our sense of place. And sometimes people are even disconnected from themselves. So how does this translate, this disconnection from nature to our health system? Well, general practice has changed really radically since I first started almost 30 years ago. So now we have this preponderance of what we call NCDs or non-communicable diseases or non-infectious diseases. So these are things related to our lifestyle. You know, we evolved outside in nature, moving around. We didn't evolve sitting down in front of a computer screen, scrolling through our social media. So our brain and our body aren't designed for this lifestyle. So that's why we see things like obesity and heart disease and diabetes and certain sorts of cancers. We're having almost, I would describe as as a tsunami of mental health problems um, in younger and younger people. So anxiety and depression, obviously, eating disorders, self-harming behaviours, difficulty with sleep and attention, addictions, not obvious, not just, you know, things like cigarettes and, and drugs and alcohol, but also addictions to screens, addictions to computer games, addiction to online pornography. Uh, and these things flow through uh, to fracture home life. So we see domestic violence, um, loneliness, people living very isolated lives, which has health consequences actually, you know, is related to depression and heart problems as well. And, of course, COVID is layered on top of all that as well with the last, you know, three, three years or so that we've been going through COVID. So there's been even more fracturing and isolation from that. And then there's this lovely quote I thought I'd include from David Suzuki, which is, our great boast is the possession of intelligence, but what intelligent creature, knowing the critical role of air for all life on earth, would then proceed to deliberately pour toxic materials into it? We are air, so whatever we do to air, we do to ourselves. And this is true of all the other sacred elements, and he's referring to water and soils and um, those kinds of things when he's saying sacred elements. So, you know, if we harm our environment through climate change or pollution or through logging and land clearing and loss of biodiversity, obviously we're harming the natural world. But what, what many people don't haven't realised or don't realise is that we're, it circles back around and we end up harming ourselves. So climate change is now regarded as the biggest public health threat we're facing this century, so bigger than... Uh, cancer bigger than COVID, bigger than heart disease. So climate change is a massive health problem. Air pollution is a huge health problem in Australia. Air pollution causes more deaths than the road toll. So, um, you know, this is from uh, pollution from burning gas and other fossil fuels for our cars or for powering our energy. Plastic pollution, which, of course, it doesn't look nice to see bits of plastic floating around, but the plastic um, fragments down and we end up uh, through our exposure in our food supply and so forth to various chemicals within plastic, they accumulate in our body and they're related to certain disruption of our endocrine system, which is our glands and um, hormones, uh, and also accumulates in certain tissues. And chemicals, certain chemicals do this as well. So 
I mean, it's no surprise really that our rates of breast cancer, for example, which were, you know, we had a lifetime risk, I think, of one in 14 when I was a medical student. Now it's about one in nine. So, you know, this is relating to what we've been doing to our environment. Our loss of biodiversity has meant, uh, uh, you know, threatens threats to our food supplies. We um, pollinators and other and uh, other animals. And finally, COVID, which we we know is what we call a zoonosis, which is a new type of infection which has jumped from animal species to humans, and that come about because of an erosion of the natural barriers between different species and between humans. And um, when there's a breakdown in the natural barriers, we see these uh, novel viruses ar arriving. So HIV is one. And of course, now we have COVID. So if we harm nature, we are harming ourselves. And we can't think of our health without thinking about the health of the natural world around us. And I think that uh, on the right-hand side of this um, graphic, you can sort of see the alternative to harming our planet is to heal our planet. And through healing our planet, we're also going to be healing, healing ourselves at the same time. Um, so, of course, that brings me back to that point you raised initially, Michelle, about we need to catch up and think about seeing the world differently. And we can look to um, ancient cultures for that. And we can particularly look to the longest continuing culture on earth, which is the, the culture and the philosophies of Australia's of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I think I've got time to share a little story about uh, this is my one of my sons with a man called Willie Gordon up on his country north of Cooktown. And this was a really profound learning moment for my family because we we went for a walk up to through the this beautiful open woodland. And of course we we're from Melbourne, so we we're a bit bit weak in the in the tropical heat. And we got to the top of a a hill and a Willie, we all had a drink and Willie said, pointed out a little lizard that we hadn't, of course, noticed on the ground. And he turned to my son and said, well, you know, you've had a drink. Do you think maybe that lizard over there might like a drink? And my son said, oh, well, yeah, I guess so. Um, and Willie, and, But he didn't know how to go about giving him a drink. And Willie said, well, if you just pour a little bit of your water from your drink bottle into that leaf um, and put it on the ground, the lizard will go and have a drink. So Ben carefully poured the water into the leaf and sure enough, the lizard scurried across and drank the water from the leaf. And it was this, you know, this way of kind of noticing and then caring for country. And it was so different to how we would have been. If we'd been there on our own, we probably would have just marched on by and not noticed the lizard at all. And we might have taken a photo of it, but I don't think we would have thought to to provide care and and um, look up look after that lizard to see that as something that needed to be to be looked after. So um, I think this is a new way of thinking that we need to be um, yeah bringing into our systems. And as I said earlier, the natural world supports our health in all these different ways. So there's medicines and food, the foundations of our health, and we now have good evidence that. Of course, spending time in nature uh, is what we're meant to be doing. So it's, it's, it nurtures us physically, emotionally and spiritually. There are a few theories about how this happens. So from a scientific point of view, I guess we need theories and we need to understand why it is that we feel better when we're in nature. So there's a biophilia theory, a stress reduction theory and the attention restoration theory. And I go into more detail of those 
in our book, but essentially that's that we've evolved out in nature and so it's sort of a natural thing for us to do. When we're out in nature, we're not in the inherently stressful environment that our urban life creates. So that's the sounds of the city, the air pollution, the sound pollution, the light pollution, the stimulation we get all the time from our screens. So it's much more calming for us to be out in nature. And that just looking at a canopy of a tree moving in the in the wind or looking at the waves is just really uh, healing for our mind and helps to restore our attention. So there's quite good evidence now for all of these things. There are a range of experiences um, of nature connection. I think of it as going from shallow to deep. So the shallow end would be looking out the window onto a natural view. Um, study a study famous study that was done quite a long time ago now found that patients who are in hospitals who looked out onto a natural view recovered quicker after surgery and needed fewer medications and so were discharged home more quickly than those who looked out onto a, a concrete wall. Um, so you know looking out onto nature or hang, having pot plants inside on your desk, listening to nature sounds, these are all ways of um bringing nature into our, our, our work and home life and our, our healing settings or our healthcare settings. Um, and, of course, getting out into nature, the richer the natural experience. So in the deep end would be going on a, a prolonged time out in nature or out on country, um, and that would have the most uh, therapeutic effect for us. But there's benefits with all um, experiences with nature, um, but particularly when they involve water and particularly when there's lots of biodiversity. And by that, I mean lots of different plants and animals around us. So there's a couple of, exam a couple of examples of how this works in, in medicine or in a healthcare setting. So bringing nature in. This is a nice picture of a garden that Stephen Wells created at the uh, rehabilitation hospital here in Melbourne. And this beautiful garden was previously just flat you know, dirt on either side. And he created that with with patients and in what's called and others called horticultural therapy. And so that's where people kind of garden with, um, you know, to kind of get them outside into the fresh air and they're creating something beautiful. And these gardens in hospitals now are places of um, therapy, um, but also for people to come who are visiting the hospital and in long hospitals where patients are for a long, long time, it's really nice for them um, to be gardening because they feel like they're caring caring for something rather than just being in care themselves. And it feels a bit more like normal life, you know, to be doing something like that. Other examples are getting people out into nature. And so these are doing what we call green referrals. So we might uh, refer someone to an outdoor health program, like kitchen garden programs, bush kindergartens, bush adventure therapy, and nature-based therapy or nature-based counselling. So there's all different approaches that can be used. Um, the Feel Blue Touch Green was a lovely program where people with chronic mental illness were taken out to be involved with uh, landscape sort of restoration programs. And it, of course, they restored the landscape around them, but also um, improved their mental health outcomes and their reduce their loneliness and isolation and improve their social connection and community. So there are these great ways that we can be um, helping people's health and well-being and also helping heal country at the same time. Uh, here's an example from overseas. This is a man called Quing Lee who started um, 
what's called forest bathing, which I thought I'd mention because many people have heard of this. Um, and this was developed in Japan by their um, forest uh, industry, actually. Um, and they have forests which are accredited for forest therapy. And what happens is that in, in a forest therapy session, you go and spend two to three hours in a forest, um, just slowly walking around or sitting near the trees and taking nice deep breaths of the fresh air. And they are registered um, and people are referred by doctors to go to certain forests for their health benefits um, because it's been found that spending time in forests and in natural areas like this helps lower blood pressure, slow heart rate, uh, change the hormones in the body, so lowers the stress hormone cortisol, um, which, of course, is not good for us to be having lots of cortisol in our body all the time, and is generally kind of healing and also helps our um, white cells, the cells that fight cancer and infection, to become more active when we spend this prolonged time in a forest. So um, there's some lovely, a lovely example of um, work that's been done overseas and now people are starting to be doing that here in Australia as well. Here I am with my nature prescription. Generally, it's not good for doctors to self-prescribe, but I think a nature prescription is an okay thing to self-prescribe. So a nature prescription is where a doctor writes a prescription for a patient and advising them to spend a certain amount of time in nature on a regular basis for their health problems. So I do this regularly for people who might be having some sort of mental health issue or a sleep difficulty or feeling generally stressed or people with borderline high blood pressure who want to do everything they can to avoid going on medication. Um, so together we talk about where they like to go in nature, what they like to do, what's going to be achievable for them. And then we kind of, we write together, we write the prescription. So this is my prescription. So um, I just go out in the backyard every morning and spend half an hour lying on the ground, looking up at the tree canopy. Um, and that, you know, help, helped me certainly get through working in Melbourne through COVID when it was extremely stressful. Uh, so a nature, nature prescription is something that um, is, is, is fairly new in Australia, but is used quite a lot overseas, so particularly in Canada and the US and the UK. Um, so something that people might be interested in exploring. And um, I have information about that on my website if people are interested and uh, have a little PDF that people can write their own nature prescription if they want to or take it into their doctor and get them to do it with them. But that's something, uh, it's a new approach. And I think it's part of this way of getting people out into nature and getting them to see nature as the natural world as a, as a therapeutic place for them. I think Lunig says it again here beautifully. Um, it's got, what are you doing? I'm using my device. And what is your device? Well, it's the sky. Does it have many applications? Well, it has moon, clouds, sun and birds. And you have to recharge it. Well, I never recharge it because it recharges me. So this lovely, you know, it just encapsulates it so beautifully, this fairly old cartoon now. And Stephen Gould talks about this too. He says, we cannot win the battle to save the species and environments without first forging an emotional bond between our, ourselves and nature as well because we won't fight to save what we do not love. And I think it's a really important thing for people in the environment movement to understand that we need to allow people to really um, connect with nature and feel this love and connection for nature to help sort of help them bring about repairing and, and caring for it. 
And there's a little quote there I've got from the, the end of my book. I'll just read it if you like. This is kind of the overarching goal of, of, of what I'm hoping for. So imagine a future where healthcare settings are naturally healthy places to be with fresh air, plentiful plants and images and sounds of nature. Landscape-based health interventions embedded within our medical system will help restore well-being to those suffering. Forest bathing programs will see old growth forests and native forests protected and cherished for their health-giving values and degraded ecosystems will be regenerated by those seeking community, friendship and meaning. All children will have time and space to play in nature. Bush kinders, kitchen gardens and outdoor learning and adventure will be an integral part of young people's lives. They will be given every opportunity to feel the wonder and awe of nature. This nature fueled revolution, invigorated by a sense of care, will intuitively address the twin problems of climate change and biodiversity loss, because those with a green heart and mind, with the spirit of deep listening, will make the right choices. Well, thank you, Dr. Williams. I'll put a link to your book, Nature, Our Medicine, How the Natural World Sustains Us, in the show notes. So please go there. Also, that event was recorded, and so I'll put a link to the Australian Earth Laws Alliance website in the show notes. The group has always been remarkably efficient in the past, so I expect the recording will be there in no time. Let's shift now to a report from the Lancet Planetary Health, and it's some similarities to the previous story from Dr. Williams. The headline for the report is Climate Anxiety in Children and Young People and the Beliefs about Government Responses to Climate Change, a Global Survey. The summary says, Climate change has important implications for health and futures of children and young people, yet they have little power to limit its harm, making them vulnerable to climate anxiety. This is the first large-scale investigation of climate anxiety in children and young people globally and its relationship with perceived government response. Let's go now to a story from The Guardian, and it's by Sandra Laville. The headline for the story is, One of 32 Countries Facing European Court Action Over Climate Change. The story begins. A key plank of the UK government's defence against the biggest climate legal action in the world next week has fallen away as a result of a U-turn by the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on green policies. The UK is one of 32 countries being taken to the European Court of Human Rights on Wednesday by a group of Portuguese young people. They will argue in the Grand Chamber of the Strasbourg Court that the nation's policies to tackle global heating are inadequate and in breach of human rights obligations. In its defence to the legal action, which is the biggest climate case yet taken across the globe, the UK government argues it is taking world-beating action to tackle climate change, with legally binding target to reach net zero by 2050. The most recent episode of Climate Conversations featured a TEDx speech by Hannah Ritchie, a data scientist who wants us to think differently about how we see the world. I was so impressed with what she said, and having followed her for some time, I decided to approach her and suggest she be a guest on Climate Conversations. Hannah got back to me almost immediately, and she said, Thanks so much for getting in touch. I really appreciate the invitation. Unfortunately, my schedule is already packed for the coming months, and I'll struggle to squeeze much more in. Sorry not to be able to do this one. Thanks again, and keep up the amazing work on the podcast, Hannah. 
It's comments like that from people you don't even know from the other side of the world that encourage you to keep going. Thanks, Hannah. Next, we have Climate Calling from SBS News. Dimity Taylor is a sheep farmer in Bannister, 100 kilometres north of Canberra. She says a wind turbine casting shadows over her property is what inspired her to invest in a local solar project. The community is owning it. It's not some big foreign company that we actually get to be owning this project and driving this project. The solar farm in Goulburn is owned by 300 local residents as part of a group named Community Energy for Goulburn. Vice President Ed Suttle says the farm will consist of up to 4,500 solar panels, becoming the first such Australian community-run solar farm with a battery. Mr Suttle says the group formed out of frustration at a lack of action by authorities after eight years of planning and consultation. People who were fed up with the apparent lack of activity at state and federal level about developing renewables. There's currently 145 community-driven energy groups all around Australia, triple the amount that existed in 2015. And there are currently 3 million rooftops in Australia installed with solar installations. Carl Tiedemann is a senior researcher in climate solutions at the Climate Council of Australia. He says whether it's a large community project or just a couple of solar panels on your roof, any renewable energy is a big win for the climate. Currently the grid uh, is still um, on average majority produced by fossil fuels and so they're producing lots of emissions. When uh, lots of solar production is occurring, uh, those those electrons that are being produced to create the electricity are, are essentially zero emissions um, minus the emissions that it takes uh, to, to build uh, solar panels and install them and things, but they're very, very low compared to fossil fuels, so it's a big win for the climate. Dr Gabrielle Kuiper is a distributed energy resources expert at the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis. She says solar can be a cheap and efficient source of energy on any scale. People are only being paid a small amount to export to the grid, um, whereas, of course, it costs you a lot um, to import from the grid. Um, So that's why so many households are putting solar on their roofs. At the moment, you can put a solar system on your house and it will pay for itself in three years. There's a benefit to having it on your roof because you're only paying for the solar system. You don't need to use the local poles and wires so much. So your charges for those network costs decrease when you put a solar system on your roof. The New South Wales government has provided the Goldburn Community Energy Project with a grant worth $2.3 million. Mr Suttle says part of the money is being used to educate other communities. Part of that money is to fund a knowledge sharing document when we've finished, which is a template for any other community in the entire country to do what we've done. The owners of the farm are hoping to be able to sell power to the grid by the end of this year. Ms Taylor says she's looking forward to seeing if other towns adapt a similar energy model. I really hope that this model can be expanded and I feel like this project in particular is paving the way. Kira Hain. SBS News. We have another story from SBS News. This one is 
races on for the world to reach net zero emissions. The race is on for the world to reach net zero emissions. Global efforts to mitigate climate change are coming into focus ahead of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP28, in November. Professor Diana D'Alessandro is from the University of Sydney's Net Zero Initiative. Net zero really means reducing our demand and moving to the use of forms of energy and transport that don't emit greenhouse gases. So that's one part of net zero but the other part of net zero actually means and this is really the net in net zero means removing historical emissions of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Net zero is achieved when greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere are balanced out by those that are absorbed. Eight countries have already achieved that standard including Panama, Madagascar and Bhutan. Australia has set targets to reduce domestic emissions by 43% on 2005 levels by 2030 and achieve net zero by 2050. Professor Michael Breer is the director of the Energy Institute at the University of Melbourne. He says that will require considerable investment. We need to completely rebuild our electricity system but it's not just electricity, we have cars, we have aeroplanes, we have industry, we have agriculture, we have other things that are significant sources of greenhouse gas emissions and we need to find ways over the next less than 30 years to abate those sectors. Many countries have shifted their net zero targets since the Paris Agreement, which aims to avoid catastrophic temperature rises by limiting global warming to well below two degrees. The Maldives is aiming to reach net zero emissions by 2030, Finland by 2035. Iceland has committed to 2040, while Sweden and Germany's targets are set for 2045. Like Australia, New Zealand, Colombia, the US and Japan have committed to 2050. The world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, China, aims to reach net zero by 2060, along with Saudi Arabia and Russia. India's target is 2070. According to Climate Watch, more than 90 parties have communicated their net zero targets, but not all of them have enshrined this in legislation. Head of Research at the Climate Council, Dr Simon Bradshaw, says that will be an important step. We do see a lot of problem with greenwash from governments and from corporations, a lot of spend and failure to actually achieve genuine emissions reductions, and that's what we need right now. Australia is one of the world's largest consumers and producers of coal, but Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen says the government is confident of reaching its net zero goals. We've got multiple strategies and we're putting them all into place. So we're converting our grid from 33% renewable to 82% renewable by 2030. That's a big, big job, but we're getting on with it. Uh, we are working to decarbonise transport by looking to introduce fuel efficiency standards, we've cut electric vehicle taxes, we're cutting emissions from industry through our safeguard reforms. The coalition is yet to announce its official energy position to take to the 2025 election, but opposition leader Peter Dutton has described nuclear power as the most credible pathway to reducing emissions. For Dr Bradshaw, a drastic change of direction is still needed, with the country's energy needs predominantly met by fossil fuels. Approving new coal and gas projects in 2023, when we're really on the edge of a climate abyss, is extraordinarily reckless. Now, the government could put a stop to this straight away by reforming our national environment laws. Jennifer Scherer, SBS News. 
Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. I've really enjoyed having you along. Now, I'd urge you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think about this podcast, good or bad. Please tell me. Don't hold back. And you can contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. I really hope, yes, I sincerely hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I'd urge you to share it with your friends, yes? Please share it with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. Because to resolve this problem, it all depends on all of us. We all need to do something from wherever we are. We should be doing what we can. Now, thinking about this, remember what Canadian activist Naomi Klein said, to change everything, we're going to need everyone. And that includes you and me. It needs everyone. Now, until we talk again, I urge you all to take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now you, please take care.